If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Uh, last week, what we saw in, in, towards the, the first 30 verses of Acts chapter 4 was the first recorded episode of persecution coming from outside the church. Just some, some things that were happening, right? There was uh, the Sanhedrin persecuted uh, both John and Peter, and, and they went back and told of the story that happened, and they refused uh, to their face to even pre- uh, to, to stop preaching about the name of Jesus Christ. They went back and told their people, and the people prayed for boldness, and the Lord replied um, or responded to their prayer uh, by giving them boldness. It says that the place was, uh, that they were all filled with the Spirit, the place's foundations were shaken, and um, the people went on proclaiming boldly the works of Christ Jesus. And so we got to see that. Um, now, what we see here is kind of a peer or a peak. Luke gives us a peek behind the veil of what's happening on the inner workings of the church. So what's taking place behind scenes? Luke tells us two different stories in our text today about unity in the church. The first is really positive. It's, it's really encouraging. I mean, it's something that we look at and, and we're going to talk a lot about today about how this is the kind of people we want to be, right? This is who we can strive to be. This is who the Spirit empowers us to be also. But the second is terrifying. I mean, it's, it's sobering. It, you can, I think, probably kind of hear a pin drop as that comes. Do y'all hear feedback back there? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, I'm hearing it up here too. So chapter 4, verse 32 through 511. Let me, let me read through this and see if, um, see if this will help us get a picture of what's happening today, all right? So now the entire group of those who believe, remember that's somewhere around 10,000 believers at this point, counting men, women, children. The entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was, in, uh, this was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, continuing in chapter 5 here, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it you plan this in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we, we love gathering together to, to read your word, to hear your word proclaimed. Father, I ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word, Lord, that with it you would bear fruit in our lives, that this word would be a piece of what helps us abide in Christ, remain in him, to, to do all that he's commanded. And so, Father, help us to respond in faith to this text today that it may help us grow deeper in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, 
In John 17, if you'll remember with me when we walk through John, we, we, we see there that Jesus is it's the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Lord, and he has three different petitions. But one of the first, or I'm sorry, the last petition that he makes is concerning the current believers that are the disciples that are with him then, and then also concerning future believers. And this is what he says. He says of all of them, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. So over and over and over again, in those few verses there, you see the word one. You see that Jesus is praying that the believers be made one, that they be unified, that this be a mark of who they are, and that the mark would be one way that we make um, real for the world that Christ was sent by the Father to die for the sins of people, that he's united them together now through belief in him, and he's working in the world today. That one way the world outside world can look in and see that is to see a unified body of believers this is one way that we show that christ is indeed real that what has what has been said of him is true and so even before going to the cross even before dying for believers christ had in mind the unity of his people this is what he was after but it wasn't just kind of some faux unity right it's a unity that is only found through faith in jesus so we can unify around a lot of things, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but what Jesus had in mind is a unity that would come through faith in Christ. That believers, though they're distinct in design, right? None of us look the same. All of us have differing personalities. We have different interests, different likes. We, we may come from different backgrounds. We may be different colors. But what Christ is after is a unity that breaks down any of those things we might call barriers into where now people that we might not normally find something in common with, we're now united in Christ Jesus. And this is the kind of unity that he's making. That though we're distinct in design, we are to be one in purpose. One in love, one in action, one in joint submission to Jesus. And Jesus' prayer reveals that this is, as I said a moment ago, one way that the world will know and believe that the Father sent the Son and that He's loved people and made them believers as He has loved the Son. And so we get to see this here. Uh, a guy by the name of Theodore P. Ferris, com, uh, is commentator for a Bible um, series called the Interpreter's Bible or Bible commentary called the Interpreter's Bible. He said this, and I thought it was good. Steve, Brother Steve pointed this out to me this week. He said, if Christianity expects to exert an influence in the chaotic world, it will never do it through unrelated, though well-meaning individuals. Uh, let me repeat it. If Christianity expects to exert an influence in the chaotic world, it will never do it through unrelated, though well-meaning individuals. It will do it through the community that is dedicated to a divine commission. And you and I in Christ have received a divine commission. We've been made into new people and placed on a new mission. Right? We've talked a lot about how Acts is a book about how the people of Christ continue the mission of Christ. Or that the mission of Christ continues through the people of Christ. And, and so what we can see is what we can rightly ascertain from this text is that unity among believers matters. It matters that we get along. It matters that, we have, uh, that we're one in identity, that we're one in purpose. This matters more than anything else because the mission of Christ is to seek and save the lost. And because it's to seek and save the lost, that's at stake if we're not unified, if we're not one. But when we become one, we become one who are on mission to seek and save the lost. And this passage reveals the importance of this. Now, in my opinion, this passage that we're looking at, 4.32 through 5.11, is really an example of kind of the sometimes unfortunate nature of chapter breaks, right? I mean, it's just a weird place 
to break a chapter. So if, if we were just kind of reading along, we might would stop before we get to this. We may not notice how these two stories go together, but they certainly go together. These two stories are placed together by Luke. They're historically and strategically tied together. Luke tells two stories of people living during the same time of the early church. He links them with the word, but. Both stories describe the selling of property and an offering from the sale. Both stories use the word great. In the first story, we see great grace. And in the second, we see great fear. Luke highlights the kindness of God and the severity of God. We see all of these things here. These stories are used to highlight the importance of unity within the body of Christ. And one is a story of unity experienced, 432 through uh, 37. And the other is a story of unity endangered, 51 through 11. Uh, Psalm 133, I just want to read that to you here. It says this, it says, How good and pleasant... Is it when brothers live together in harmony? He goes on to describe it this way. He says, it's like fine oil on the head running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard onto his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has appointed the blessing, life forevermore. So there's, there's a beauty to Christians dwelling together and unity. And the thing I want you to see today, the overarching theme of today's text is this. And if you're taking notes, you can kind of fill in this blank. God creates unity in the church. God creates unity in the church, and the church maintains unity in Christ. God creates unity in the church, the church maintains unity in Christ. And what I hope. And what I've prayed for the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds and to see and to savor, like to think on, to dwell on, to meditate on, are, are two great truths. Number one, that God creates unity in the church. Now, how does God create unity in the church? God creates unity in this way. He sends His Son to save us from our sins, or has sent His Son to save us from our sins. We are united together in Christ, when we believe in Him, we become His people, Ephesians 1 says. That we become His people. We are the church. And that, the second great truth, is that the church, Christ's people, these people who become one because of the gospel, maintain this unity through their new identity in Christ. That they're united in now this new identity in Christ. They maintain that through their identity in Christ and so I want us to take a deeper look at what that looks like for us. The first thing I want you to see is that unity is created through the gospel. This is one of the things about the story of unity experience that is most true. That, that we experience, or I'm sorry, that unity is created through the gospel. Unity happens through the gospel. Look again at 4.32, just at the, the A part there in 33. It says, now the entire group of those who, what? Believed. The entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And then in verse 33, it says this. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. So those who believed what the apostles were teaching, which was the resurrection, brought great grace on all the people. So we must understand that unity is created by God through the gospel of Jesus. The entire group of those who believe is a reference to that some 10,000 people who believed the gospel message that the apostles were proclaiming. Now, the message is this. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as the Son of God. That He is exactly who He said He is on earth. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. Namely, that He was going to give His life as a ransom for many. And that whoever would believe in Him can be saved. And so we see that here. We see the gospel being proclaimed by the apostles that Jesus is alive, that He's He's well, He's risen, and now He's ascended 
on high, and He's empowered us with the Holy Spirit to go on proclaiming and advancing the mission of Christ, which is to seek and save the lost. And so He's doing that. They're proclaiming that. And guess what? God's honoring what He said He would do. Jesus is saving people. People are being unified. They're of one heart, one mind. 10,000 people of one heart, one mind. That's like the entire city of Magnolia, maybe a little less, being unified in one heart and one mind under the gospel of Jesus. That's incredible. It's a work that only the Holy Spirit could accomplish. It's a work that only God can do in the hearts and minds of people through the Holy Spirit. And so this means that the Holy Spirit was moving powerfully through the message and that He brought grace, the grace of Christ, on them all. What is the grace of Christ? It's the power to save them, but also the power to unify them. There's so much grace being poured out by Christ through the Holy Spirit in these days that it's saving people and unifying people. And guess what? This is still a work being done today. Christ is still saving people. He's still unifying people. Praise God. We don't read about something here that we don't get to experience. This is something we get to see today. So what does it mean then to be in Christ? I keep saying in Christ. So let me just make sure we're all on the same page. We get this term from the Bible. This isn't something that I've decided to just make up because it sounds pretty. Colossians 1 says this. It says, in Him... In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is what it says about us before the in Christ part. It says, once we were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. That's what it means to be in Christ. That we are now in identity someone who we never could have been apart from a work of God. Amen? The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ now creates a new people. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning they've placed their faith in Him, they've united with Him in faith, they're giving their life to Him, they're believing in Him, which means belief there means not just simply that I think He's real, but that I think He's real enough to trust Him, to believe in Him, to follow Him. It's a commitment to Christ. It says those who are in Christ are new creations. It says the old has passed away and see the new has come. So there's something new in us now that unifies us to believers, whereas before we were alienated and we were all about ourselves, right? We were selfish. And now in Christ, we've been made new creations. We're putting to death the old man, that old thing's gone away. The new has come. This is a new way to live. We are new creations in Christ. Somebody shout amen. So it's exciting. And then it tells us that the implications of being a new creation in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.16 are this. It says, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Now this is the one that challenges us. This is the one we're going to battle with a little bit. We're going to find really difficult. So here's what he means. He means that we disregard worldly standards for evaluating people. We don't see worldly standards, worldly measurements as important anymore. Like status, like finance, like place, right? Like, like the things you know or the things you own or how great you are. These things matter not to us anymore. We're not about seeking the really awesome people and leaving out the really, just kind of by our estimation, not awesome people. It's just not what we're about. We regard no one, no one, from a worldly perspective. To do that is saying that this life is really all that matters. When we act that way, we're saying that nothing beyond this world matters. That's not a Christian perspective. That's not a Christian way to live. So we must be careful of that. Because in Christ, we see all people as valuable because they have an eternal soul that is worth something. Amen? And because of that, 
When the gospel transforms our lives from being spiritually dead in our flesh to spiritually alive in Christ, our new identity in Him makes us value what He values. We love what He loves. We desire what He desires. This is part of the transformation product in us that we call sanctification. It's being made into the likeness of Christ. Well, how are we made into the likeness of Christ? By staring at, by beholding the glory of Christ. Listen, you can't stare at, you can't behold the glory of Christ in the Scriptures and not be made like Him. In fact, it says that as we stare at, as we behold the glory of Christ, we're being made into that same image of glory day by day. What an incredible truth for us who are struggling with things like this. That we can look at Christ who had this mind of humility and say, I want that. And I'm going to stare at it, and I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to meditate on it, and I'm going to block out all the things that tell me I shouldn't have that mind, and I'm going to believe that the Lord creates in me a mind of humility to where I begin to value people the way He values people. This is what it means to be in Christ. That we are valuing people's souls more than anything else in this life. We see people as valuable, as important, as necessary to proclaim and advance the gospel. And so we find unity in Christ with people we may otherwise have nothing to unify around. We understand that as Christians, we understand that believers are simply sinners who have been saved by God's grace and that we have that in common with one another. We unite then around the good news of the gospel that Jesus saved us. And we understand that unbelievers, as Christians we understand this, that unbelievers are sinners in need of the gospel message. They're in need of knowing that God's saving grace in Christ Jesus is for them. And so we unite then with other believers to take the gospel to those people. And we do it with our works and our words. We're going to do good deeds for other people. We're going to lay ourselves down. We're going to count them as more valuable than ourselves. And we're going to tell them about Jesus Christ. That's going to be what transforms hearts and minds. Now, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Okay? Like, I want us to understand, we don't all have to look the same and dress the same and smell the same. Thank goodness, right? We, we, we get to be ourselves. We get to be actually a better version of ourselves because it's the God-infused version of ourselves. It's the post-Christian, post-salvation version of ourselves. We get to be that. And we get to be united around that, but we get to maintain our distinct attributes, our personalities, what we like and dislike. We get to, to be ourselves. Listen, you're not demanded to be unified by like this certain list of, of personality characteristics or um, dress or any of those kinds of things. Praise God. But, but we are unified by our new identity in Christ Jesus, which we receive by God's grace through the gospel message. This is what unifies us. So even worldly people unite typically around common likes or pursuits. Like one of the big things we can kind of see, and, and maybe you're not really into any of these things, but, but I am a little bit. And so one of the things you can observe is identity politics. Take that for example. Identity politics is a process used to unite with people who prioritize the concerns most relevant to their particular racial, religious, sexual, ethnic, social, cultural, or other identity. This is uniting people. The process, though, pits one group against another and has no regard for anyone other than itself. Itself is the only important thing. And it's destroying the social fabric of America. But what else should we expect from unbelievers? The issue becomes when Christians see that value system as a way to value people, and then we're in a big, fat mess. Because this is not the way God has created us in Christ, new creations, 
to be. In fact, he's made very clearly that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor master. That the dividing walls of hostility between people have been broken down. Praise God. We can now officially, rightly, fully, truthfully be identified in Christ and therefore unified in Christ. It's amazing and it's a work that no other religion does, that no other belief system does, that this is it. This is it. And we should see it that way. Now, it's an awful thing to observe identity politics in our society today. But, but I'll offer you a word of encouragement because I think that this is a God-ordained special moment for Christians in America. I think that this is a wonderful opportunity given by the hand of God to be a unified body of believers to prove to the world that Jesus is real and that he's saving people. As Christians, we must learn to lay down this militant offensive against differing people groups. We must learn to take on a missional offensive by uniting around our identity in Christ so that we proclaim and advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. If we'll do that, if we'll do that, we will see Real, countercultural, world impacting, Christ exalting unity in the local body. And it'll be beautiful. It'll be one of those things that people in the county, right, look in and kind of begin to hear the stories as you're going into your workplaces, you're telling people on social media, you're, you're getting the word out, you're spreading the word about what God's doing in your life and what he's doing in this church and the unity that you see here. And it'll be one of those things that somebody who is de-churched, they just said, man, I don't want to have anything to do with church again. Or somebody who's unchurched, they're an unbeliever and they're like, there's nothing for me there. They'll look into that and they'll say, huh, Maybe there's something to this Christianity thing. Maybe there's something to these people. But listen, we've got to look different, smell different than, than what most of cultural Christianity looks like and smells like. We have to. The, the, the word of our testimony depends on it. Unity is maintained through generosity. So unity is created through the gospel. Unity is maintained then through generosity. I know it's a bit redundant, but let me just reread kind of 32b through 37, just so we've got that on our, on our hearts. It says this, it says, uh, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and this was distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph. So it's going to give us an example of what he's talking about. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. And let me just tell you, throughout Acts, you're going to see why he's called son of encouragement. Barnabas, is he's just a dude. I mean, he, he is a dude. So um, he says here that he sold a field he owned, that he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So, so let me just explain to you kind of what's, what's taking place here. Here. First, unity begins, as we said a moment ago, with the work of God through the gospel message. Okay, so, so these people are united in that first. I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us to, to miss that the gospel creates this kind of mind and heart. Because if we miss that and we go try to be generous without the mind and heart, we're going to get frustrated, we're going to be terrible at it, and we're going to give up. But if you want to not grow weary in doing good works, as Paul instructs the church, then you need to understand that the motivation, the ability, the power to do good works comes from God through Jesus Christ, who is empowering us through the Holy Spirit. It's that faith in Him that does this for us. 
So I don't want you getting frustrated. I don't want you to say, man, I can't do this. Because this is not you doing this. So Moses is who you are now in Christ doing these things. Are we clear? Amen? All right, clear as mud. Let's keep going. So what I want you to see too is that this is a voluntary, though it's radical for sure, it's voluntary, right? It's a voluntary generosity and sharing, and it's seen as commendable by the apostles. So it's, it's not communism, as some have said. It's not socialism, as some have said. It's not those things at all, and we need to be very careful in trying to, trans, uh, trying to take what we see in Scriptures and just place it on society and say, this needs to be the new rule. Because again, if we do that, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not what's happening here. I want to make that clear. It's not forced by the apostles. We see that in the next story. All the people, it says, remember, that's around 10,000. All the people held all things in common. Those people simply practiced what they believed. You understand that, right? Jesus gets tested at one point, and he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And that you love, and the second he says is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You see, these people took what Jesus said, that you love your neighbor as yourself, and they said, okay, we've got to do that because this is what Christ has commanded us to do. Now, what I'm afraid of is that you and I are a little bit more prone to be like the Pharisee in that moment when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, and the Pharisee says, well, and who is my neighbor? Like, see, the Pharisee wanted clarification so he could know, like, who can I mistreat and who can I not mistreat? Like, who can I get away with these things with and, and, and who can I not? And so Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that everyone's your neighbor. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are, what your thoughts about other people are. All people are your neighbors, the point he's making. And I think if we're not careful, we too sometimes ask. We see a person in need, it's like, are they really my neighbor though? And so we don't want to take this too literal. He's not referring to the person who lives next door to you. He's referring to people. People are our neighbor. People are our neighbor. And these early Christians understood what was at stake. The gospel. The truthfulness of the message. And they united around that gospel and maintained that unity that they had there through being generous. Through showing the world that Christ is who He says He is, that the Father sent the Son and that He's loved believers and He's united us to Himself. And now that shows up in the way that we're reunited to one another in the way that we're sharing with one another. It's a mutual sharing that proves that God is real. I love it. Their generosity came from being transformed to have the same heart, the same mind, meaning there was a generous love for one another, the same heart, and there was generous thoughts about one another or toward one another, the same mind. It was Holy Spirit empowered. We need not negate that. We're not reproducing this on our own. We're falling on our faces before the Lord today as I preach, and we're saying, Lord, do this in us. We must have a work of your Holy Spirit if we want to become these things. It's unnatural for us. So it transforms us. It helps us. It gives us this humility that we see in Christ. Philippians 2, Paul says there, have the same mind as Christ. That this mind is given to you in Christ, he says, that you would humble yourselves and consider others as more important than yourself. I mean, if Christ didn't do that, what did he do? He certainly humbled himself and considered the world as greater than himself. Amen? It says there even to the point of death on a cross. And so we have that mind in Christ to consider others above ourselves so that we share and spend our time, our, our talent, the way that God's wired us and made us useful for His kingdom and our treasure on others for their good, 
but namely and most importantly for his glory that that he would be magnified so we see this when christians who are are maturing in christ they begin to place a higher value on sharing resources for the advance of the gospel rather than continuing to hoard resources and stuff for themselves. Now, the example we have here in the text is of extraordinary sharing of the wealthy, right? It's selling lands and houses, it says. Now, Barnabas is named there for, for doing such a thing. He's held up as a hero of the faith, and we need such heroes to keep the mission going forward. I mentioned to you just last week about a trip that I've been invited to go on. I'm, I'm, I'm at the mercy of generous givers to be able to go on such a trip. So we need people who say, I'm going to be generous for the Lord and help advance the mission of Christ financially. And it says here that these people who previously saw wealth as a way to to kind of better their own lives, lands and houses, having been transformed by the power of the gospel, now saw their wealth as a blessing, but also a responsibility in that it became a way to help other people's lives be better, right? And and so if you're, you're wealthy, you must consider texts like this and texts like 1 Corinthians 6, 17 through, through 19, which, I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, which we read earlier, and I didn't know that was going to be read, so that's kind of cool. Um, but, but now let me read to you again. It says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So a couple of things you see there. One, having things is for your pleasure. It's a gift from God. But two, you have a responsibility in having things to to understand that you have been gifted in a way that not everyone has and that now you can share those things to invest for yourself in something that matters for eternity, namely souls, people, advancing the mission of Christ. And so this isn't a text against having things. It says they sold lands and houses. It instead they sold all their land and house, right? Or houses. It's a call to stewardship, to generosity, to being a good steward with the gift that God's given you. And so maybe you'll say, well, I'm not wealthy. Well, by what standard? If we're talking about the world standard, just the, the whole world, we're very wealthy. If we're talking about the people we work with, then maybe we're not. If we're talking about the people sitting around us in this room, then maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But the question is, and the thing that really is a concern here, is not how much wealth you have, it's how well you're stewarding it. It, it brings into, this, uh, the, into our minds this question that we should all ask. We should, we should all of us examine our spending habits. All of us should examine our debts, our outstanding debts, the bills we're paying, and our possessions to see if maybe, just maybe, it's possible that we aren't stewarding the wealth that we have in a God-glorifying way. See, what I've come to learn is you don't always need a raise to be generous. Sometimes you just need to learn how to be content. And that's what the text is teaching here. People who said, you know what? I've overinvested myself in the things of this world. I'm going to get rid of those things so that I can help propel forward the mission of Christ in the world. Help my brothers and sisters in need. This is a call for all of us. This isn't a call for someone who has more money than you do and for you to point and say, that's right, socialism. (laughs) You should be sharing all of that. Not at all. Because as we'll see in a moment, it's up to you to decide that. It's up to you to decide in your own heart how you're going to be generous or not. And so though financial generosity is kind of the example here, it's not the only way to be generous. You have time that's available. That's a resource of yours. You can give it 
to people, to the church, to helping people grow in Christ. You have talent that God's gifted you with. You've been gifted in some way by the Spirit of God to help the church grow spiritually and numerically, to help aid in all of our discipleship. We are better as a people when all of us are investing time and talent into the body. Amen? You guys aren't near convicted enough on that. We're better, all of us. All of us are better when you decide to invest your time and talent into the body. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so God creates unity in the church, but the church is responsible to maintain the unity in Christ. We do that through generously loving others so that they may see this Christ in us and share in the inheritance of eternal life when they believe in Him. I mean, this is just a wonderful text about unity experience, but let me draw your attention to 5, 1 through 11 because now we have a warning. This is unity endangered. Unity is endangered through hypocrisy. I'll take a sip of water while you write that down. We're going to finish strong here, y'all. Here we go. 5, 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it yours at your, or wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard. And young men came and they wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. And a few hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. Peter Ask her, he says, tell me, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, for that price. And Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. This passage is terrifying. It's sobering. A commentator by the name of Art Azurdia says, A dangerous holiness is God's response to a determined hypocrisy. I love that. Ananias and Sapphira were determined hypocrites, wanting to be known and praised for falsified good deeds. They were spiritual posers, praise seekers, liars, greedy, deceivers, instruments of Satan, and spirit grievers. They're not to be imitated. They, they weren't required to sell the land. They weren't even required to give the proceeds. Again, it's not socialism. It's not communism. But they did it, and it says they kept back. The word there, kept back, is a Greek word that means to secretly keep for themselves. They're, they're hoarding it. It means to be greedy. So when it says they kept back, what it means is, is hey, we sold the property for this much, and we're giving it all. But they're lying because they kept back some for their own. They could have. This is what is insane about this. They could have sold the property for $100,000 and said, hey, here's $20,000 from the sale of the property. We're going to keep 80. And that would have been just fine. Do you understand what's happening here? It was just a desire to be seen. It was a desire to be known. It was a desire to be applauded. Just to say, look how awesome they are. And God struck them dead for it. He said, not in my house, right? He said, we're not having that here. You're not going to endanger what the Spirit's doing here with your hypocrisy. Get it out. And you and I need to read a text like this and say, Lord, look into my heart and reveal to me where maybe I'm a hypocrite too. Help me. Help me. 
And so we're, we're kind of tempted to look at a text like this and just kind of balk, right? Like, God's a little harsh here, isn't he? I mean, this isn't the first time God's killed people for, for not doing what he commanded them to do. There's a long history of it in the Old Testament. This is, God takes sin seriously. So if we're, if we're going, if we're going to, to, to say that lying to God isn't this big deal, like it didn't deserve death, then we need to be careful. Lest, lest we imply that lying to God isn't a big deal, and we show that we don't value God's holiness, and therefore we're minimizing our own sins. Like Satan destroys you in that way. That's how he destroys you. He, he tempts you to think that your sin's not a big deal. And that you can go on and, and you can proclaim that you're so-and-so way, but you're not. Hypocrisy endangers unity because a person claims to be of Christ, but doesn't walk in the holiness of Christ. And so it's like agreeing with the truth that gossip is wrong and you, you preach that message faithfully to others. Like, man, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be gossiping. And then you become the biggest gossip in the county anyway. Like, like we're going to look at you and say, you're insane. You're a hypocrite. You're destroying unity by being a hypocrite. Now, does this mean that we have no margin for error? Does this mean that we can't can't sin at all, or that, that we're going to be struck dead. Well, clearly not, because we're all here. It, it's, it's not saying that at all. It, it's showing us that we strive for holiness. We strive to be set apart by our love for the Lord and by the work of the Spirit in us, while all the time knowing and being aware of how we miss the mark, how we don't get it right. It's what we do when we miss the mark that makes us either hypocrites or faithful Christians. That's right. You can miss the mark and still be a faithful Christian. Or you can miss the mark and be a hypocrite. So when you miss the mark, this is how you know, am I a hypocrite or am I a faithful follower? When you're missing the mark, in other words, when you, when you sin, do you go on living in error, ignoring that sin? acting like it's not a big deal? Or do you confess that sin and repent and turn back to the Lord? What we need as believers is a healthy fear of the Lord, understanding that He is perfectly holy and demands our holiness, commands us be holy as the Lord is holy, and that we're not going to get that right, so therefore we needed a healthy application of the gospel that goes with a healthy fear of the Lord. We understand that though He's holy and perfectly holy, that Christ had to die so that we could be made blameless, as we read earlier. And that He rose again, that we're now saved by faith in Jesus Christ and not our good works, or not saying that we're awesome when we're not awesome. That's not what saves us. We're saved by being united to faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're justified by faith alone. This is what Romans teaches us so clearly. And then we live in repentance as a response to that. We confess our sin. And we go to the Lord confessing sin with the truth of 1 John 1, 7-9 reigning over us, warming our hearts. As we confess sin, it says there that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. What a truth we have to take to the Lord in confession. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's not looking to strike you dead. But do not, do not go on living in hypocrisy. Do not go on sinning as if it doesn't matter. It does. And at some point, you will face the judgment of God for that. Could be in this life, could be in the life to come. But it's going to happen. And so be aware of that. Be ready to confess, to trust Him. So let me just... 
conclude this way. What would it look like for you to choose your identity in Christ over self-identification? Like over what you think is most important. Instead, you're saying, I want to choose Christ and what He loves. What would it be like to choose unity with the saints of God here in this place, right? Or in some local expression of the body of Christ elsewhere. But what would it be like to unite with the saints of God over this kind of me versus the world behavior? What would it be like to be self-sacrificially generous over self-preservedly greedy? What would that look like in your life? We must be bound together in the gospel of Christ by our new identity as believers because of our mutual Christ-given mission to seek and save the lost. This is who we are now. Brothers and sisters, if we ever hope to impact this city, this county, and beyond for Jesus Christ, we need to understand that it won't simply be because we've got great kids' ministries or that our youth and college ministries are doing well, or that we have friendly greeters at the door when you walk in, or that our worship team is just awesome, or that the preaching is passionate. It won't be simply because of those things. It will be because we've decided to bind our hearts and our minds together in Christ Jesus, to consider others more important than ourselves for the good of them and for the glory of the Lord and all the earth. Amen? That is what it will take to impact this city and this county for the Lord. Let it be said of us that that's who we are. Let's not let the unity of God that He's created in us through Jesus go to waste on our watch. Life's too short for that nonsense. We're, We're called to be bigger, better people than that because of what Christ has done in us. So let us live as people whose hearts and minds have been transformed and are being transformed into the same image, into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we love the Lord. We're growing in faith in Him. and We love others. We're growing in our faith, our, our love for them. Let's maintain unity in Christ, who He made us, who He's called us to be. And may God be glorified in our unity through gospel-saturated generosity and not put to shame by our disunity through self-saturated hypocrisy. God created unity in the church. He's creating unity in the church still today. And it's up to us to maintain that unity through our identity in Christ. Let's do that. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?